Okay, well, welcome again. If you're uh, new here or a visitor, special welcome to you. And um, if you have any questions, feel free to seek out a friendly face. That's, that's all of you. And ask any questions and, um, you know, happy to have a speak with you afterwards. Um, our speaker today is our own pastor in training, Mark Brown. He'll be bringing us a message from Acts 17 titled, The God You Need to Know. And um, we'll also be sharing communion towards the end of the service. And um, we should be rounding up about 12.15 or so. And after that, there'll be tea and coffee served in the atrium, as usual. So please feel free to join us for that. So the reading this morning is taken from Acts 17. And we're reading from uh, chapter, uh, sorry, from verse 16 to the end of the chapter. So that's Acts 17, reading from verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far away from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Amen. May God bless the public preaching of his word. Thank you, Carl, uh, and thank you, Dave, and thank you all for, for coming this morning. It's, um, it's my pleasure to be able to open that passage of Scripture that, that Carl has just read for us. Um, my name is Mark, and I'm the, the pastor in training here, um, and I'm filling in for Duncan, as he's off on paternity leave for the next few weeks, and let me just add my congratulations to Duncan and Amy um, on the safe arrival of Jonah. Um, yes. <laughs> Praise God for that. Um, just before we look at this, this passage together, let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that we come together this morning not to share our own thoughts and ideas about who we think you might be, but we come to who you have revealed yourself to be in your word, and we can know with certainty who you are because you have revealed it in, in the Bible and you have revealed it in Jesus Christ. And so, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, that we would see more of who you are. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So we have been going through the book of Acts for, for some time now, and this morning we turn to this passage that, that uh, Carl has just read for us, and the, the book of Acts is the story of the triumphant mission of God. It's the story of the, the spread of this true life-saving message, a message that was for all people in all places at all times. And we see that it originated in Jerusalem, but it spread out to Judea, Samaria, to Rome, and to the ends of the earth. And we here today in Bankery are evidence of its successful spread, its phenomenal spread. And it is phenomenal because when you look at the men and women who were responsible for spreading this mission, it looked pretty unlikely to succeed. Um, they were timid individuals, but they were given great boldness and power by the Holy Spirit to proclaim this life-saving message to whomever they met. And the message of the mission went to many different people in many different ways, but the essence of the message never changed. Their message was that Jesus was crucified to give people who were enemies of God forgiveness and life, and to make his enemies, his friends. They shared the truth that Jesus died, but he did not stay dead. He was raised to life, proving that he is truly God and Lord, proving that he is to be worshipped and followed, even if that meant going against the culture and the rulers of the day. And many people did believe and were transformed and were prepared even to die to tell others about this message. And this message spread and spread, and this morning we see that it spreads into Athens, and that's the next step of this mission. 
I wonder if any of you can um, relate to this embarrassing kind of story. Um, it's, a, it's a Brits abroad kind of thing. Um, you know, you, you go off on a holiday to, to a country where there is no English spoken, and somebody in your group decides with great enthusiasm that they want to make friends with the locals, uh, want to make friends, and that's a good thing. But they have not a word of the local dialect. And so they proceed to, to speak to the locals in English, but louder, and they articulate the words much clearer than they would normally. And they're met with a blank face. And so they speak louder and clearer, and they add in some hand gestures for good effect. There is lots being said, but there's no meaning being transmitted between individuals. And your friend, for all of their, their, their good intent, is doing nothing but frustrating and alienating the person that he's trying to make friends with. Now, this is bad when it comes to the reputation of English speakers abroad. But this is tragic if this is the approach that we as Christians take to the spreading of this life-saving message. And, and let me confess right off the bat that this is something that I'm probably not very good at. I, I'm very keen to stick rigidly to the truths of the gospel and to communicate those, which is a good thing, but I'm not so good when it comes to adapting the style of my words and my metaphors to communicate to people who don't speak my Christianese. Uh, and I wonder if you can relate to that. Um, Paul, this morning, he gives us a masterclass in speaking the gospel clearly to a people who did not speak the same language, certainly culturally as him. And we can learn a lot from Paul as we see him sticking rigidly to the life-saving message of the gospel while adapting his approach and his speech so that his audience could really hear him. He adapts his method, but the heart of his message is unchanged. And, and we could articulate it in, in this passage here as there is a God you need to know, there is a God you can know, and there is a God you must know. There is a God you need to know to find the answers that you're looking for. We see that in verses 16 to 21. And there is a God you can know. He's closer than you think, in fact. In verses 22 to 28 of Paul's sermon, we see that. And then there is a God you must know. He is coming to judge the world. We see that in verses 29 to 31. There is a God you need to know. In our passage this morning, Paul has arrived on pagan soil. He escaped from Athens in a hurry, fleeing strong opposition from a Thessalonian mob that pursued him and chased him out of Berea. And they sought to do him and his message serious harm. So he splits from Timothy and Silas, and at the start of Acts 17, he heads to Athens. And Athens in Paul's day was the intellectual capital of the world, rich with cultural and philosophical pursuits, home in the past to great philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. And we see in our passage, um, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers are active in the marketplace. Now, I am no philosophy expert, but in a tiny nutshell, here is what I understand the Epicureans and the Stoics to believe. The Epicureans, they believed that God, our gods, were somewhere out there, 
unknowable, unreachable, and essentially inactive in the world. And so they advocated a lifestyle of personal pleasure. Epicurus himself said, the only thing that is intrinsically valuable is one's own pleasure. Anything else that has value is valuable merely as a means to securing pleasure for oneself. How very modern. And in contrast, so the Stoics thought of God as being everywhere and in everything in a pantheistic kind of way. Although they did not see God as being physically distant, he was not a personal being that you could have a relationship with. He was more of a pervasive force than a person. So for the Stoics, the way to live was by living in harmony with nature and the universe, so virtue and ethics, not pleasure, is the highest goal. Again, how very modern. These philosophies were abuzz in Athens, and they haven't gone away. We are still often presented with the options to live life for personal pleasure or to live an ethical, virtuous life, to find meaning and true satisfaction. But as we see, neither quite cuts it. In our pursuit of pleasure, we are left unhappy. And in our attempts at virtue, we're just not good enough. Athens then, like Scotland today, was a place full of these ideas, full of talk. And as we see, it was full of idols. Statues to various gods were so numerous that a writer by the name of Petronius quipped that it was easier to meet with a god in Athens than it was with a man. But for all their thinking and all their talking, all their gods, they never found what they were looking for. There was never any end to their questions, to their pursuit for meaning and ultimate purpose in life. In verse 21, we see that everyone in Athens would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The search for something new that might finally give an answer to their deepest questions was endless. And so, Paul, when he spends some time in Athens, walking around the city and observing the people and their practices, he becomes very disturbed about it all, provoked in his spirit in verse 16. Paul is disturbed by the myriad of false gods and idols he sees worshipped there. But more than that, he is disturbed by the one true God he doesn't see worshipped there. And Paul knows that because the Athenians don't know God and worship him, they will never find the answer to their questions. There is a God they need to know. And we live in a world that is in many ways like Athens. We are not surrounded by statues on plinths, and our idols are much more invisible, not made of silver and stone, but we are absolutely surrounded by gods. And we're also full of questions, aren't we? Um, questions that we, we never seem to find a, a very satisfying answer to. Questions about the purpose of life, how to live a good life, how to get along with one another, how to live at peace at home and in society. Is it just a matter of finding the right balance between personal pleasure and living a virtuous life? Or is there something more these are deep questions, and we look for answers from our gods of money and career, education and success, family and friends, 
charity and leisure and pleasure, just like the Athenians did. And like them, we find that none of these local gods really provide any lasting satisfaction. We might be surrounded by gods, but there is one God we need to know, or we will never find the answers we are looking for. And Paul in Athens was moved by this, and he was moved to speak. That's a challenge for us, isn't it? Are we moved by the state of the world around us? And are we moved to speak? Well, Paul is. And first we see Paul go to the synagogue, to the devout people, Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. And he goes to persuade them that there is just one God they need to know. But Paul doesn't stay in the relative comfort and safety of the synagogue. It's easy for us, isn't it, to, to talk about Jesus in a Bible study or at church. And we are often tempted to keep our personal faith private. But this is something we should resist. Yes, faith in Jesus is very personal, but it cannot be private. And Paul knew this, and so he goes into the town square, to the marketplace where everyone would be, milling around and doing their daily business, meeting one another, sharing ideas, trading goods and services. And he speaks with the philosophers and the traders and really whoever will listen. Here's a question for us. What is our marketplace? Where is it that, that you go to meet people that would not normally come into a Bible study or into a church? Where is it you engage with people in their daily lives? For some of us, it might be school or work. It might be a gym or a social club. It might even be online on the internet. We need to follow Paul's example and get into the marketplace and make our personal faith public. But first, we need to follow Paul's example by looking around, seeing how people live, what things people talk about and think about and care about. We need to care enough for people to understand the things that they love and are passionate about so that we can speak their language. And look at how Paul does speak with people, both in the synagogue and in the marketplace. In verse 16, we're told that he, he reasons with them in verse 17. Um, and he conversed with the philosophers in the ESV. The word conversed is used uh, with the philosophers in verse 18. You know, this is not shouting at people through a megaphone in a language they don't understand. It's open, clear, back and forth communication that aims at clear understanding using words that make sense. And this is surely something we all need to strive for. Open dialogue about big truths that open the way to questions and more clear communication. And, and we see what it is that Paul talked about. We were given a very brief summary in verse 18. Um, Luke tells us very succinctly that he preached about Jesus and the resurrection. And now clearly, Paul's message was more than these two words. He spoke a lot more than this, but certainly not less. Paul's message to the Athenians centered on Jesus and his resurrection. And he sought to communicate this in a culturally sensitive and clear way. But note this also, 
We, we, we see that clarity of speech and cultural sensitivity can never make the gospel completely clear. It is a strange message. It is strange in the Athenians' ears. We hear them say that. And it is strange in the ears of people in Bankery too. We can make the, the facts of the gospel um, plain and, and understandable to a degree, but unless the Holy Spirit opens people's hearts, it will remain a strange mystery. And we see that here. We see the philosophers and the folks in the marketplace, they, they said that Paul was a babbler who didn't know fully what he was talking about. But nonetheless, they were intrigued. They heard what Paul was saying to them. It sounded strange. They wanted to know more. Here's an encouragement for us. You know, as Christians, we shouldn't get discouraged when we share the message of Jesus with people and they don't get it at first. We should, in fact, be encouraged if the response to our sharing the message is that people think it's strange but want to know more. Questions are good. And if you're a Christian, you should certainly welcome questions and do your best to answer them. But you should also recognize that even the best answers from us will not remove the strangeness of the gospel. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So we must pray that he would open eyes so that people can really grasp it. And if you're not a Christian and the message of Christianity is strange and confusing to you, ask questions. Your Christian friends will not be offended. In fact, they should be delighted to try and answer them. To find, and if you have questions, please do stick around today and, and have a cup of tea and, and ask questions. This is what happened with Paul. He spoke of Jesus and the resurrection. It sounded strange, despite his clear and sensitive speaking. His audience questioned and wanted to hear more, so they invited him to speak at the Areopagus, the, the local council, which would have met at a place called Mars Hill. And in this speech to the Areopagus, we will see him building on the knowledge that there is a God they need to know and tell them that there is a God they can know and must know. Verses 22 to 28, Paul stands up in the Areopagus and begins his formal defense of his message that he's been sharing informally in the marketplace. Again, his speech, it's tailored to the audience. He doesn't quote any Hebrew scriptures here, and he doesn't start by saying that, that Jesus is the Messiah. These are very Jewish concepts that would have had little resonance in Athens. Instead, he starts by making a bridge from what he knows of them and how they think to what they need to know about God. So Paul opens by saying, I've been walking around your beautiful city. It's incredible, wonderful architecture, beautiful art, great poetry. I've noticed something about you Athenians. You're very religious. We see that in verse 22. And, and this word religious, it can, have, it can have two meanings. It can be positive or negative. And the Athenians could really take it either way. But for Paul, calling them very religious, he wasn't commending them, but he was, I think, very gently rebuking them as being very superstitious. Because he sees them, and he sees their city, and he notices as he's walking around this altar 
which is actually this picture here. This is the altar to the unknown God. And Paul says, I have found this place where you make sacrifices to a God you don't know. And this is Paul's way in to share the gospel with the Athenians, because Paul knows that there is a God they need to know, and this God can be known. And here's an important point for for us. Worship without knowledge of the God you are worshiping is worthless. And Paul wants them to know God and worship Him in truth. So, Paul tells them that there is a God they can know who is the creator of everything. He's no local, regional God responsible for for fishing or agriculture or weather. He's the God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And as the maker of everything, he is in charge of everything. He's Lord over all of it. And as Lord of everything... He's not to be put in a box. He cannot be confined to a a man-made temple. He certainly doesn't need anything from men. What could men give to the God who gives life and everything to them anyway? God gives mankind life and breath and everything. And and Paul's main point here is this, that, that God is the giver of life And not only was God active in the past in giving life, God is still active in sustaining life and in ordering all life in the world that He made. And as such, Paul tells us that He puts people in specific places at specific times. Now, such a God would be mind-blowing for the Epicureans, who thought of God as far off, somewhere out there, uninvolved and inactive. God was involved, and He was near. And next, Paul says something that will blow the Stoic's mind, who thought of God as everywhere, but like an impersonal, unknowable force. Paul says God is near and knowable. God puts people in certain places at specific times so they should seek Him and perhaps feel their way to Him and find Him, we see in verse 27. God is much nearer than you think. Paul says God has taken the initiative so that we could even, in a sense, reach out and touch Him. We can know Him. That is the purpose of life. This is why God gives us breath and life and everything. It is why He has put us here and now. It is no accident. God is in control. You are here so that you might reach out and know God. God has made Himself knowable. And the fact that there is something instead of nothing, the fact that you have breath in your lungs and life in your soul tells you this to be true. God is real and God is near. And Paul quotes even some of their own poets in verse 28 to emphasize this very point. This is really good news that makes sense to these people. The God you need to know to find the answers to your questions, not only can He be known, He takes the initiative in order to make Himself known. The Creator and Lord of all is the God who can be known and is nearer than you think. Now, 
if you think this is just something that happened back in Athens, I, I was <laughs> abruptly reminded as I was writing this sermon, in fact, that this is so relevant to us. And as I was writing a message, a notification popped up on my phone, which was an advert to an event that was happening just over the fence there at the rugby club on Friday evening. Friday evening, there was an audience with Maureen Smith, clairvoyant, entitled, Is Somebody Out There? This is a very real question that people in Bankery have today. Is somebody out there? It's heartbreaking to see people groping about in the dark, searching for answers, when we know the God who has made himself known. And we need to invite folks here, and we need to get out there into the marketplaces of Bankery to say, yes, there is somebody out there. In fact, he's not just out there, he has come near. God has come to us and is much nearer than you think. There's a God you need to know. There's a God you can know. And then finally, Paul moves to the final point of his sermon to tell them that this God is a God they must know. In verses 29 to 31, this God you need to know, this God you can know is the God you must know. It is utterly essential that we know this God. And Paul, having connected with his audience, now challenges them. He says, you must know God as he has revealed himself to you. And in knowing him, you must turn from your ignorant worship of God, a God of your own imagination. And this is a point that strikes at the heart of the Athenians' religious practice. They, by their own admission, were worshiping God in ignorance, worshiping a God they knew they did not know and thought of as an unknowable. But Paul shows that God is knowable. He has revealed himself. He's nearer than you think. And this being the case, Paul says they must know him and they must stop worshiping in ignorance and instead worship God in truth. To do otherwise would be to ignore God. And to ignore God is the opposite of worship. Again, this practice of the Athenians is so in tune with our own age, where many people like to think of themselves as spiritual. They like to think that they are worshiping God, but they will never define what God is in any objective kind of way. He is somebody or something out there, and everyone is free to worship Him or maybe even it in their own way. This is a God of their own imagination. This kind of spirituality is nothing more, in fact, than self-worship, because when you worship a God of your own imagination, you're just worshiping yourself. And God says to the Athenians through Paul and to us today, God will not stand for this kind of worship, this kind of ignorant, self-styled worship. God commands all people everywhere to repent. We must repent of our ignoring God and our self-styled worship of God, because He is knowable. Here's the question, how can we know God today? Well, He is revealed to us in the world around us. The fact, again, that there is something instead of nothing, that we have a world of life and beauty, it points to a Creator God. 
He has also come near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. God became a man who lived a perfect life, died a brutal death, but didn't stay dead. And we see God when we look to Jesus. And it is by believing in Jesus that we are brought not just into a knowledge of God, but into a close relationship with Him. So finally, Paul, he brings the sermon to a very challenging conclusion as he brings it back to the main point he was making in the marketplace. He brings it back to Jesus and the resurrection. Because it's through Jesus and the resurrection that God is most clearly and fully revealed. And it is because of Jesus and his resurrection that we know he is alive and will return. Jesus and his resurrection gives us hope that we can know God, and it also gives us the urgent message that we must know God, because Jesus is alive and he will return to judge the world. That's what verse 31 tells us. A day has been set when we will stand in the presence of God and we will be judged. The day is coming, Paul says, when God, the one true God that we need to know, that we can know, that we must know, will return, and we will be found either worshiping the God of our own imagination, or we'll be found worshiping the one true God who is Lord of all. This should make Paul's audience shudder. And it should make us shudder if we today are not worshiping the God who has made us, who is Lord over us, who is revealed to us in creation and in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. I wonder how you respond to Paul's message this morning. Well, we, we see how, how Paul's audience responded in verses 30 to 34. After speaking about God, the God that people can know and must know, a message culminating in Jesus and the resurrection, some people mocked. Some people questioned seriously, and still others believed. And each one of us here this morning has these three same options. Do we hear about Jesus and the resurrection and instinctively mock? This is a dangerously closed-minded reaction and if this is you today, I would urge you to be more like the second group who were unconvinced, but said, we will hear you again. Tell us more. Convince us. Or even better, I pray that you would be like Dionysius or Damaris, who believed. These people who believed came to know the God who would supply the answer to their deepest questions. They would reach out and take hold of the God who reaches out to each one of us in Jesus Christ, and they would worship him in truth and still be found worshiping him when he comes again to judge the world. This is the best place for us to be. And if this is where you are today, if you are a Christian today, we are left with the challenge to get out into our marketplaces this week and to tell others about the God we all need to know, the God that we can know, the God that we must know, and to do it not as somebody shouting through a megaphone in, an un, in a language that people don't understand, but lovingly, sensitively, and clearly. 
And having shared this life-saving message, we, we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would make the strange gospel message the means of salvation for many. Well, thank you for joining us this morning and worshiping with us. Um, if you've got any questions or you'd like any prayer, just um, feel free to come up. I will be sitting somewhere at the front. Um, and do stick around for a cup of tea or coffee as well. Uh, let's part by saying the, the words of the grace together. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.